God, I thank you for worship this morning. I thank you for the musical setup of the message that Bill has brought us. And that last song, those words, when the night is holding on to me, God is holding me. Lord, I thank you that you have laid hold of us. And you're not finished with us. You're calling us deeper. You're calling us further. You're calling us to Calvary. I pray, God, that you would... I just surrender my thoughts to you. I surrender my voice, my body. That, God, you would use me this morning to speak the words of truth in a way that speaks deeply in our spirits. That your Holy Spirit would communicate the power of the cross this morning. Lord Jesus, we confess our great love for you and our desire to be more like you. And as we're surrounded by darkness, God, we pray that the light of the life of the Lord Jesus would pulsate even brighter within us and that you would be glorified and that people that are in darkness would be drawn to the light. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. In my Easter message at Pat and Greg's house a few weeks back, we considered the resurrection scene where the two Marys went to find the grave, to see the Lord's grave, and they encountered the angel at the tomb who declared to them in Matthew 28, 6, that he is not here. For he is risen, just as he said. And in my last message, I shared about three instances involving Peter that were punctuated with fire. First, he stood by the, and warmed himself by the world's fire in the uh, courtyard as Jesus was being questioned after his arrest. And then Peter was warming himself by the fire that Jesus built on the beach after his resurrection. And then it was the fire of Pentecost that came upon Peter and the others as they prayed in the upper room. Now, all four of those scenes were powerful in both their context and in their consequence. This morning, I want us to look a bit deeper at the powerful spiritual context and consequence of the cross, the empty tomb and the upper room. And I believe that uh, power is the correct word uh, to use in this message this morning and for us to focus on. Um, It's the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection, and the power of Pentecost that encompasses all that it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Without the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Jesus would just be the good teacher, the philosopher or religious leader that so many assume him to have been but we who know him personally know he is so much more than those attributes power is also what most christians find lacking in their walk of faith we can question ourselves this morning how's our spiritual power level today 
How powerful are you feeling in the Lord? Well, if you're like me, too often it seems it's a power fluctuation. Uh, some days, faith is strong. And other days, just barely hanging on. It doesn't have to be like that, though. We often think of power in the Christian life in terms of Pentecost. And certainly God's power was dynamically demonstrated through the lives of the believers in that upper room, and especially through Peter's sermon and his declaration of the gospel that resulted in 3,000 conversions that day. Powerful, powerful. But we can never view Pentecost apart from Calvary or the empty tomb. It was the power of Jesus' faith and the Father's plan that enabled him to endure the cross and to despise the shame. It was the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. In fact, the scripture tells us that God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, Jesus himself, raised him from the dead. It was the triune power of the living God that refused to allow the Son of God to remain in the tomb. So the route to power in the life of a believer is always through Calvary, through the tomb, the empty tomb, and then Pentecost. What Jesus endured on Good Friday and what he accomplished on Easter morning are more than just a provision for our sins. They're also a pattern for our lives. Each of us as believers has claimed the first. We accept the benefits, the provision of what Jesus did on the cross in order to become Christians. He died for my sins. And if you believe and follow him, he died for your sins as well. We accept the benefits of the cross, of Christ's sacrificial death for us, to be the propitiation, the appeasement to God for our sins. And in Christ we are forgiven, and like that song says, the gates of heaven are thrown open wide to us. We accept Christ's provision for us, but we are, true, are we truly cognizant of the pattern of the cross? Our first principle this morning, the provision cannot be enjoyed until the pattern is employed. <laughs> the provision cannot be enjoyed until the pattern is is employed. In 1 Peter 2:21, he said that Christ not only died for our sins, but he also left us an example that we should follow in his steps. So with that preface, let's look first at the message this morning of the cross. What is Calvary about? One thing, death. Calvary is about death. But it's not only about Christ's death, but our co-death with him. Paul said in Romans 6, 3, and then in verse 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. You know, we as Christians love to live in Romans chapter 8. It's a good place. Huh? It's a good place. Yes. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But you can't live in Romans 8 without experiencing Romans 6. You cannot experience the victory of chapter 8 until you've appropriated by faith the death of chapter 6. The cross is about death. No one who was ever nailed to a cross came down alive. In the day in which Jesus lived, crucifixion on a cross was the Roman execution of choice because it was public, it was painful, and it was shameful. It sent a very clear message. In the spiritual realm, the cross is God's subtractor. It's the divine eliminator. The cross takes things away, most significantly, the flesh. In Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him. The cross is God's condemnation of man's sinful flesh. But Paul's not talking about the physical flesh of our bodies, but rather our fallen human nature, deprived and depraved, but deprived of the life of the Spirit of God that's perpetually dominated by rebellion and thus lives in separation from God. Romans 7:18. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. With that realization, the Apostle Paul declared his spiritual impotency in the flesh when he said in uh, Romans 7:18b, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it in the flesh. And in verse 19, he follows up, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. This is the conflict of two natures. That song reminded me of that when the night is laying hold of us. God is holding on. There's a battle waging in each of our lives, and it's that conflict of two natures. If we do not come to grips with the fact that apart from Christ we can do nothing, John 15:5, we will spend our lives trying to make ourselves presentable to God. What futility. Contemplate the folly of that. Do we really think that we can patch up, cover up, discipline, repair, reform, tame, convert, or Christianize our flesh? No. We cannot make our old man a new man. We cannot do that. That's a work that only Christ on the cross can accomplish. We must die with him. No matter how we try to dress up the flesh, it's still the flesh, and God has condemned it. As Major Ian Thomas said in his book entitled The Saving Life of Christ, the nature of the flesh never changes. No matter how you may coerce it or conform it, it's rotten through and through. Even with a Bible under its arm, a check in its permissions in its hand, and an evangelical look on its face. C.S. Lewis said that the flesh will do anything to keep from dying. It has as its life principle self-survival at any cost. And J.O. Williams said, the flesh spends all of its time and energies looking for the Calvary bypass, but the Bible gives no alternative or detour. There was not one for Christ. There's not one for us either.
We will never mature in our faith walk in Christ until we realize that God's purpose is not to improve the flesh or to re-educate it or conform it or reform it, tame it, discipline it, or Christianize it. All other religions of the world try to do that. They try to cover up the flesh with good works. But all our good works are but filthy rags to a holy and righteous God. God knew that the only way to deal with sinful flesh is for it to die. So he sent his only son to take our place, to die for us that we might live and to set the pattern for our lives for victory in him. The flesh must be crucified with Christ and left in the tomb where dead things belong. Then and only then can the great exchange take place. God's grace makes the great exchange possible. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. So what is the great exchange? His riches for my poverty. A new man for the old man. His grace for my guilt. His power for my weakness. His fruit of the Spirit for my works of the flesh. His adequacy for all my inadequacies. His all-sufficiency for all my insufficiencies. And His peace for my restless heart. So how is this possible? How do I appropriate this in a way pleasing to God? Hebrews 11.6 tells us, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. It's by faith that we see what is unseen. It is by faith that we accept that Christ's death included me. In that passage in Romans 6, Paul uses the past perfect tense of the Greek when he says all of us were baptized unto his death. We were buried. Our old self was crucified with him. For he who has died is freed from sin. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Past perfect tense. In essence, we cannot say Christ died for me without also saying I died with him. That's a powerful principle. We cannot say Christ died for me without also saying I died with him. Paul summarized his truth in Romans 6.11 when he said, So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to our next principle. Accepting Christ's provision for you on the cross will get you to heaven, but applying the pattern of the cross will fit you for heaven. (laughs) Accepting Christ's provision for you on the cross will get you to heaven, But applying the pattern of the cross will fit you for heaven. And accepting the provision of Christ will give you security about eternity. But applying the pattern of the cross will make you sufficient and secure until then. Now let us consider for a few minutes the means of death on the cross. Our next principle, you cannot crucify yourself. You cannot crucify yourself. Crucifixion is one of the only means of death 
which must be inflicted by someone else. I apologize for being graphic here, but the reality is that you can shoot yourself, you can drug yourself, you can hang yourself, but you cannot crucify yourself. And obviously if someone's having suicidal thoughts or they need to seek out the counsel of a friend or family member or professional counselor to talk through those thoughts and feelings. It's not God's will that anyone take their own life. That's not what I'm referring to here. What I'm talking about this morning is in the spiritual realm, but it has a physical world corollary. You cannot crucify yourself. Now, you might be able to nail your feet or maybe one hand if you have the capacity to endure that pain and the dexterity to pull it off, but you still got one hand free, (laughs) waving around, refusing to die. That's a picture really of man's futility through discipline and self-denial, self-improvement, etc. to destroy the flesh. Try as you will, there will always be some part of the old man still alive and kicking. You may be able to change some things in your life, maybe kick some bad habits and make some improvements and even do some good works. But there will always be something of the old man that just won't die. And you just can't kill it. (laughs) Our next principle. I must submit to crucifixion by faith. Just as Jesus did. I must submit to crucifixion by faith. Just as Jesus did. In John 10, 11 and then verse 18. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. Of my own accord. We must by our own volition and our own choosing. Lay down our lives by faith in order to see what is unseen. This act of surrender is not a one-time deal either. (laughs) J.O. Williams noted that it's both a crisis and a process. (laughs) A crisis and a process. There will be a time in the life of a young believer when they understand for the first time that to live for Christ involves dying with Him. And then the realization from Scripture will come that it's a daily process. Jesus said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 This walk of surrender is not an occasional experience, but rather a daily lifestyle that we must pursue in prayer and Bible study and as we are this morning in Christian fellowship. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die every day. And that's the essence of the surrendered life that leads to fulfillment and victory in Christ. We must daily apply the pattern, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Galatians 2.20 puts it plainly, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We're to no longer rely on our own plans, our own energies, our own patterns of the flesh. And this is the battle. (laughs) 
but rather we're to rely on the all-sufficiency and grace of the resurrected life of the Lord Jesus. When we learn to live a surrendered life, we'll also discover the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a process of emptying ourselves and being filled with the Spirit of God in service to others. Someone once said that we are filled with the Spirit in direct proportion to how much we're emptied of ourselves. God seals us with His Spirit when we become a believer. But it's not until we surrender ourselves completely that the Spirit is able to work through us in a powerful way. There can be no eternally effectual service until the death of the flesh has become a reality in our lives. Paul put this truth this way in 2 Corinthians 4.12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, where the death of Jesus is manifested in our lives, there the life of Christ can be manifested in others. Since the dying of Jesus is in us, the life of Jesus is in us also. There is no Calvary bypass, no lower path to power. The only path to experience the power of God in our lives is the mountain route to Calvary. The message of Easter is this, only what has fully died can be resurrected. (laughs) Only what has fully died can be resurrected. God does not resurrect the flesh or give power to the old man. There must be a new man to receive new resurrection life. If we want to find the resurrection life, we have to die to ourselves and put on the new man, put on Jesus. And that's a daily process and pattern that must be appropriated. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 12, 24. I always think of that scripture in the spring when I've dug the rose with the hoe and I'm dropping the seed in. (laughs) This has got to die and then life will come forth. Jesus also said, whoever would save his life will lose it. (laughs) And whosoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 9, 24. And then this brings us to Pentecost. We've been to the cross, there's the empty tomb, and then there's Pentecost. God only anoints resurrected life with Pentecostal power. God only anoints resurrected life with Pentecostal power. He will not anoint the flesh. The flesh perverts everything that the Spirit does. The direction from Jesus to the disciples was clear. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Luke 24, 49. Paul juxtaposes the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 1 through 21 with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. What makes the difference? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit makes the difference. It's the work of the Spirit of God. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Someone once noted that the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. It's a great image to remind us we've got to crawl back. It's a daily process. We must die daily to our own desires, our own plans, our own dreams, etc. In order to have the life of Jesus manifested in our lives. All to the end that he might use us as his witnesses. So the path, the path to power is this. Calvary equals death. The old man dies with Christ by faith. The empty tomb equals new life. The new man found in Christ. And Pentecost equals power. God's anointing on the new man. We identify with the death of Jesus on the cross through baptism. And it's a powerful image. As we lay our lives down in death and are raised to new resurrected life in him. And then we're filled with the Holy Spirit to empower us to be his witnesses. I want to close this morning by reading a, a blog post I received this morning from Alistair Begg. I don't know if you receive it, but I highly recommend it. It's based on Romans 8.17, and it's entitled, He Shares His Crown. The boundless realms of His Father's universe belong by right to Christ. As heir of all things, he is the sole proprietor of the vast creation of God. And he has admitted us to claim it all as ours by making us his fellow heirs. The golden streets of paradise, the pearly gates, the river of life, the transcendent bliss, and the unutterable glory are all by our blessed Lord made ours for an everlasting possession. All that he has he shares with his people. The royal crown that he's placed on the head of his church, granting her a kingdom and calling her sons a royal priesthood, a generation of priests and kings. He uncrowned himself that we might have a coronation of glory. He would not sit upon his own throne until he had procured a place upon it for all who overcome by his blood. Crown the head and the whole body shares the honor. Here then is the reward of every Christian conqueror. Christ's throne, crown, scepter, palace, treasure, robes, heritage are yours. He deems his happiness completed by his people sharing it. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The smiles of his father are all the sweeter to him because his people share them. The honors of his kingdom are more pleasing because his people appear with him in glory. More valuable to him are his conquests since they have taught his people to overcome. He delights in his throne because on it there is a place for them. He rejoices in his royal robes since they cover his people. He delights all the more in his joy because he calls them 
to enter into it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's it's almost too overwhelming to comprehend that you would step off your throne, become a man, encounter every temptation and trial and yet without sin, and then submit yourself to the will of the Father to, to be crucified, to be scourged, beaten, spat upon, to die the most cruel, painful, and shameful death of all on a cross. And you did it with such dignity, such grace and mercy. But the grave could not contain you. The tomb could not hold you. Son of God, You raised yourself from the dead. The Father raised you. The Holy Spirit raised you. You came out of the tomb just as you said you would. You walked among the disciples for days, weeks. And then it was your time and you ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But before you left, you promised, you called us to a a ministry of reconciliation. You called us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And then you empowered us as you did the disciples in that room, that upper room, as the Holy Spirit descended on them as fire, tongues of fire. And this whole process, Calvary, the grave, resurrection, the upper room, Pentecost. We read these things, Lord, in these accounts and our spirit bears witness with your spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. This is the road we've been called to as believers in Christ to follow him daily by dying with him. That the life of Jesus would be made manifest in our lives. And that we will fulfill that commission in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our country, and in our world to be His witnesses, to be Your witnesses. Lord, You don't bless and You don't anoint the flesh. And our struggle, the reason we die daily, Lord, is putting that old man in his place, crawling back on the altar and submitting ourselves to you anew and afresh. Lord, forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me for what I've thought. Forgive me for what I've said. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness as you've promised to do at 1 John 1, 9. Lord, our desire this morning is to be used of you in a way that confounds logic. We are simple people. But you're a mighty God. You don't need our ability. You need our availability. And Lord, this morning we want to rest in you 
in your all-sufficiency. And we thank you that no matter what's affecting each life in this room, Lord, whatever hardship we're walking through, there is no darkness. As Corey Ten Boom said, there's no pit so deep that God is not deeper. And God, you will reach down and lift us up because you've got a hold on us. You're not finished with us. Lord, we ask you to lay hold of us in a way that we might lay hold of that for which we were laid hold of. And then in this whole process of dying daily and then discovering the life of God in the midst of trials and hardship, that Jesus would be glorified, that He would receive the credit and the glory, and that, Lord, someday when our time comes to stand before You, we can cast any crowns that we have at Your feet tightly embrace you because we'll be home where we belong. So Lord, lead us home. Do that work in us that you have to do to do through us what you want to do. We submit ourselves to, to you this morning and to the cross. And we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.